Good morning. How is everyone? Good? Well, I got to tell you, I'm blessed to be back. It's been three or four years since we've been able to come and share, and you guys weren't in this building the last time we were here. It's good to see some familiar faces, and, uh, but to see a lot of new people that I've never met. It's uh, a sign that God's hand is on this ministry, and it's growing, and I'm blessed by that. Uh, I'm here with my wife, Helen, who sits right here. Yes. We are actually living in Phoenix. I pastor a small church in Phoenix, and so there was a conference last week in San Francisco for churches that minister to refugees. That's our primary form of outreach to the refugee community in Phoenix. People from Bhutan, from Burma, from Iraq, from Afghanistan, Burundi, Rwanda, Congo, uh, that have been resettled in the Phoenix area. And so, um, but it's cooking in Phoenix. It's summertime in Phoenix if you've ever been there. And so any reason to get out of that valley. Uh, so we came last week. It was uh, just God's timing. Our 34th anniversary was last week. So we were able to get out for our anniversary, spend a few days in Napa, and then go to this conference and come through here on our way back to our, our granddaughter's fifth birthday tonight down in Lake Elsinore. So uh, blessed to be able to come and share with you this morning. So let me, uh, let me pray, and then let's get into God's Word. <clears throat> Father, thank you for this morning and the beautiful work that you're doing in San Luis Obispo. Thank you for Brian and the pastors, the leaders that have a heart for you, and understand that you are the missionary God. And Lord, as I try to unpackage that idea for your people this morning, I pray that your spirit would roam freely over our hearts and minds and challenge us with the reality of who you are and what that means for us, that where your heart is at and where we know history is going, that we'd get on board and be part of it. So we lift up our time now in Jesus' name, amen. All right, go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, <clears throat> and I apologize, my throat's a little ragged. Um, so I want to begin at Luke 24, but then what we're going to do is take an excursion through the Old Testament. I'm going to summarize the Old Testament for you in the next 40 minutes, <laughs> believe it or not. So uh, in Luke chapter 24, I want to pick it up at verse 44, and here's the scene. It's Resurrection Sunday. The disciples are gathered in a room. Um, Peter has said he encountered the Lord, that he's alive from the dead. There are some women that say they, they met Jesus and he's alive from the dead. And these two disciples that had walked earlier in the morning from Jerusalem to Emmaus, had come back that night, basically, and said, hey, we met Jesus, he's alive from the dead. And while they're all in this room, Jesus shows up, and they're fearful. They wonder if they're seeing a ghost, <laughs> like uh, Casper, right? <laughs> and so he's gathered in the room, and he wants them to know, it's, hey, it's me. It really is me. I'm alive from the dead. I'm not just a spirit. Come and touch me if you want to. Feel the scars. See what's happened. I have a body. And they were still a little skeptical, so he says, well, let's have a, a snack here. So he eats with them. And, of course, spirits can't eat, obviously. And so he does have a physical body, but uh, one that's different than anything that they've ever been exposed to before. And now that he's got them all gathered and he knows that he's leaving in literally uh, a few days, uh, he is going to say something to them that I think we need to hear afresh. So let's pick it up in Luke chapter 24, verse 44. Then Jesus said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, 
that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. So he says, listen, what you're seeing here, what you're encountering by me being here alive from the dead is what was written in the Scripture. In Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, the whole Word of God speaks of me, and what you're seeing right now, what you're experiencing by me being here is the fulfillment of what's written in the Word of God. And then he says, Luke tells us something interesting, verse 45. He says, and he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. Now, this is important because he was speaking to a group of Jewish men who had grown up exposed to the Scripture and had been following him for three years, listening to him unpackage the truths of the kingdom of God, fulfilling what the Scriptures were. And now what he does before he's going to leave is he gives them a Bible study and he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. Perhaps he did what I'm about to do with you. He took them back to their Scripture, which was, of course, the Old Testament, and he walked through it with them and got them to see things that perhaps they'd never seen before, to see God's Word and who God is Himself in the light that they had never seen Him before. And that may be what happens to some of you this morning as we look at God, perhaps from this new perspective for some of you. So he opens their understanding that they might comprehend the Scripture, verse 46. Then he says to them, now this is crucial, thus it is written and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. So he concludes this summary of the Scripture by saying it was written and therefore it's necessary that the Christ had to suffer, to die, and then raise from the dead the third day. You see, if it's written in God's Word, it's going to become a reality. If it's written, it's necessary to become a reality. And so the Christ would come, He would die, He would raise from the dead. That had to happen because that's what's written. Now, what I want you to notice is verse 46 does not end in a period, but a comma. Now listen to what he says. It was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. Now, if it was written and thus necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, Jesus said, it is also written and therefore necessary that repentance and remission of sins in His name should be preached to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. So here's what I want you to get a handle on and hopefully what I'm going to reinforce in a minute. The Bible, the Old Testament, you don't need the New Testament to make the case that the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, is the missionary God, and you'll see why. But that the message of what Jesus has done needs to be preached to all people, and the foundation for that comes from the Old Testament, not the New Testament. And so let's go back and take a look at this. Go to Genesis chapter 3 first. We're going to make three other stops. Genesis chapter 3. Here's the scenario. Adam and Eve have been created in the image and likeness of God. He's created everything, and then he's created them, and they're in this unique 
position because they are the only thing that God has created that's in His image and likeness. They are in a relationship with God. It's a perfect environment. It's a perfect relationship with Him and with one another. And He says, you can eat from whatever tree you want, but don't eat from that tree. The day you eat from that tree, you will die. The Hebrew concept of death does not mean to cease to exist. It does not mean annihilation. It means to separate, to alienate, to sever. The day you eat from that tree, you will die. You're in a perfect relationship with me and each other. Everything you need is here. There's no need. You're getting nothing from that tree. If you eat from that tree, it's going to cause death. You know what they did. They ate from the tree. Immediately, a separation took place. They were separated from God, and they were separated from each other. For the first time now, they were self-conscious and self-aware. They knew they were naked and they were ashamed, and they sewed fig leaves together to make themselves coverings. A, a severing had taken place in their relationship with each other and their relationship with God. Now, here we come to Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, what I believe is the most important verse in the Bible. My conviction. Genesis 3.8 is the most important verse in the Bible. Because here's the situation. Adam and Eve, at this point, because of their rebellion, are separated from God. Their relationship with each other has radically changed. Now, God, in response, could have left them in that separated condition forever, eternally, and been right in doing so. There would have been no injustice if God would have left them separated from himself forever. It would have been fair. It would have been just. It would have been nothing that anybody could shake their fist at God and say, it isn't right. It isn't fair. They were in the perfect environment. Every need met in a perfect relationship with God, perfect relationship with each other. And they said, in your face, God. He could have left them there, but he didn't. Verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife ran out from the bushes and said, Oh, God, we're glad to see you. Thank you for coming to find us. Is that what it says? No. Here's what I want you to see. In their lost and separated condition, God's response is to seek and to save that which is lost. We're introduced here to the idea of the missionary God. Seeking to save that which is lost. He goes right into the garden where the rebels are. Where those that are separated from him. That he could have left there forever. He goes right into the garden where they're at. And their response is the same response that all of us have had and everybody else has. Until God finally hunts us down. <laughs> they hide from him. They didn't come running out of the bushes. He has to seek to save that which is lost because they will not seek him on their own. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that seek after God. No, not one. And so what I want you to see is that what happens in Genesis 3.8 is uh, uh, the fullness of God's character is on display here for the first time. Now, what do we know about God prior to their rebellion? We know he's powerful. We know he's creative. He creates everything from nothing. He's got an incredible design in the universe, the solar system. He's in, created a, you know, the, the, the atmospheric systems and everything. It's all really well designed, his creation. So he's incredibly smart, incredibly powerful. But what don't we know about God until sin is introduced? We don't know that he's graceful. We don't know that he's merciful. 
We don't know that he's patient. Because when everything is as he created it to be, even though he is all of those things, there's nothing to draw them out of him. There's nothing to unleash the fullness of who he is. So by God's sovereign design, he permits sin to enter. And he uses it for his glory. He glorifies himself by permitting sin to happen. And now what comes out of God in response to man's rebellion is the fullness of God's character. And have you ever wondered why angels care about what's going on with us? There are references in various places about angels rejoicing over one sinner that repents. And the angels are paying attention to what happens in the church. In Ephesians 3.10, the church has a ministry to the heavenly host. What's going on there? Well, think of the angels who were created to be God's servants, and they're only obedient all the time. They don't see God's grace. They don't see God's mercy. There is no need. But now man has rebelled, and they probably watched God go into the garden thinking, oh, boy, those guys are in trouble. They're going to get pounded. And what came out of God was grace and mercy, and from that day until now and into the future, they watch with awe, seeing aspects of God's characters that they'll never need themselves but it's on display as he interacts with us. And so the missionary God seeks to save that which is lost. So when Jesus, who we'll talk about in a minute, comes, and he's in the home of Zacchaeus in Luke 19, because Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in the sycamore tree to see what he could see, right? (laughs) Jesus at the home of Zacchaeus says, Ah, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And if we know the Scripture, we go, Duh, no-brainer, because from the garden, the missionary God was seeking to save that which is lost. Now go over to Genesis chapter 12. Some time has passed, and you're familiar. God interacts with Adam and Eve, and then he interacts with Cain and Abel. And then, you know the story, Cain kills his brother Abel. By the way, how long did Cain hate his brother? As long as he was Abel. Just, just check it. See if you're awake, okay? <laughs> he kills his brother. Now the missionary God, he's dealt with Adam and Eve direct. He now deals with Cain direct. In chapter 5, he deals with Enoch direct. And then he deals directly with Noah. What happens In Genesis chapter 12 is God changes. The missionary God, in a sense, changes his method. Instead of dealing directly with individuals himself, what he does is he calls one man to himself and this man's descendants to himself, and he uses them to seek others. Instead of directly seeking himself, the missionary God uses those that come to know him. And, of course, this first man is named Abram. Read with me Genesis chapter 12. Verse 1, now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, there's too much to unfold there right now, but let me give you the gist of this. The missionary God has interrupted this man's life and said, I want you to leave your family, leave your country, leave everything that's familiar, and go to a land that I will show you. Sounds like he's calling Abram to do what? Be a missionary. 
And he says, you go and you do this, and I'm going to bless you. So here's this promised blessing to this man that God has sought out. Here's a blessing, a promise that God will bless him. But notice what it says in verse 2. And you shall be a blessing. Somehow, his descendants miss that part, as do many Christians today. The idea that we are blessed by God to be a blessing. That the blessing God pours out upon us has a purpose, not just for us to be blessed, but that we are to be a channel or a vehicle of God's blessing. Blessed to be a blessing. So in Matthew chapter 10, when Jesus sends the disciples out for the first time to preach and to heal and to uh, cast out demons and so forth, he says, freely you have received, freely expend upon yourself. No, he didn't say that. He said, freely you have received, freely give. That concept goes all the way back to Abram in Genesis chapter 12. So here's what God is saying. Abram, I, you're an old man. You have no kids, but I'm going to make you into a distinct ethnic group. You're going to have a child. You're going to have descendants. They're going to be a unique, distinct ethnic group that we call Israel or we call the Jews are going to come from your loins. And I am going to bless you, but I'm blessing you so that you will be a blessing. Now, how far and how wide does God want to bless through this people of Israel? Verse 3. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So right there, in the call of the first Jew, is the idea they are blessed, yes, but they are blessed to be a blessing. And that blessing is to be for all of the families of the earth. All of the clan size groupings, even within each ethnic group, down to clan size groupings, are going to be blessed through you. That's how far and wide I want to bless, you see. And so Abram's life begins. Now, go on over to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. Now, Here's, let, me, let me fill in the blanks between that, Genesis 12 and Exodus 19. If you're taking notes, you can write these down. It wasn't only Abram that heard the idea of blessed to be a blessing, and God wants to bless all the families or all the nations of the earth. In Genesis 26.3, Isaac, his son, heard it. In Genesis 28.13 and 14, Jacob, his grandson, heard it. So, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the big three, heard directly from the lips of God that they and their people are going to be blessed to be a blessing and that God wants that blessing through them to be global in scope. That all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through them. And you know the story. Jacob then had 12 sons. One of them was his favorite, and one of them, that one, walked with God in a unique way. His name was Joseph. Now, what we know already is that God plans to bless all the nations of the earth. That's always been his plan. That's always been his desire. Now, at the time, Jacob had these 12 boys. This boy that was really tracking with God, he said some things, maybe not so wisely, to his brothers about what God had shown him, and his brothers hated him and wanted to kill him, but instead they sold him to slave traders who then took him to Egypt and sold him as a slave where he was purchased by 
the commander of Pharaoh's army. Now, I submit to you that what those brothers did unknowingly was they launched a missionary. God loved the Egyptians. The Egyptians were in the dark. They were worshiping the created, the sun, the moon, the cows, the flies, the frogs, the Nile, Pharaoh himself. They were worshiping the created rather than the creator. And so God sent a missionary among them. Potiphar had him first. The upper echelon of, of that society interacting with Pharaoh and the guys that protected Pharaoh. Joseph worked for him, and Joseph represented the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the creator God, foreign concept to the Egyptians, a creator God as they worshiped creation. And he did it so well, he was given privilege and stewardship over everything, but then Potiphar's wife got the hots for him. You know that story. Wanted to seduce him. He wouldn't go for it, so now he gets accused of rape, and he's thrown in the slammer. The missionary God at work. Because there needs to be a representation of the missionary God, the true God, not only to the upper echelon of Egypt, but also to the dregs. And so he's sent on at least a two-year mission into the prison, interacting with the poor, interacting with thieves, interacting with people who hated the king and the kingdom. So from the lowest spectrum to the highest spectrum of Egypt, the missionary God has a representative saying, there is a God who created all these things you're worshiping. Worship him. Eventually, he gets out of prison because God has revealed things to him about the future of the nation, and then you know the story. He becomes the second most powerful man in Egypt. He brings his family. Eventually, they spend 400 years in captivity. They grow from 70 to 2 million. They're a threat to later pharaohs, and they're made slaves, and then God picks up his plan to the next step, and he calls them out of Egypt using a man named Moses. And now listen, very important. As Moses leads them out, as he's going to Pharaoh, I want you to keep in mind when you go through those sections there of, of uh, Exodus chapter 3 to chapter 10, God says all through the, that the Egyptians will know that I am God, that the Egyptians will know that I am the God in the midst of their land, that the Egyptians will know that I am God. He wants the Egyptians to know that he is God. Why? Because they're worshiping the wrong thing. He doesn't want them to know that he is God, so when they burn in hell, they know who sent him there. He wants them to know that they, he is God, so what he does is he methodically shows them you're worshiping the wrong thing. The Nile, turn it to blood. You want flies? Here, have a few billion flies. You want frogs? Here, frogs. Methodically saying you're worshiping the wrong thing. Worship the God who created these things. They weren't getting it until finally God says, they worshiped Pharaoh as the God-man, so he took Pharaoh's son. The next God-man in line, God took his life. And finally, they let Israel go. And as Israel goes, some of the Egyptians go with them. They went out a mixed multitude, the Bible tells us. Some of those Egyptians said, we've been worshiping the wrong thing. We're going with those guys. Their God is where it's at. And so they went together. Now Moses is leading them. He's now at Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 19. He goes up on the mount. God's going to reveal to him the Ten Commandments up here. But God says to him in Exodus 19, verse 3, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. 
Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. So he says, I want you to tell Israel this, that they're going to be a special treasure to me above all people. Now, that sounds like God is saying Israel is more important than all people, or maybe Israel is more loved, but that's not the truth. Because what we know is that they were special treasure because they were given the privileged position of representing the missionary God, of living in such a way that if others saw him, they would want to, saw them, they'd want to know the God of these people. You see? And so a special treasure to him above all people, well, above in the sense of if you took a shower this morning, the shower head was above you. It's not more important or more loved than you are. It's above you because it serves you by being above you. The water comes out of it. In the same sense that Mary was not loved more than any of you ladies in this room. God didn't love Mary, the mother of Jesus, more than any of you ladies. But she was given the privilege of being, in a sense, the faucet through which the living water would flow. She's in this privileged position of being a vehicle or a channel through which others would be blessed. And so was Israel. They were to be this channel. And so is the church. But as they didn't get it, most in the church don't get it. So, listen to verse 6. He says, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Important to define a word here. What is a priest? A priest is a go-between. A priest is a mediator. A priest is somebody who's in a unique position with God, and he uses his position, his unique relationship with God, on behalf of those that are not in the same position. A priest does not do what he does for his own purposes. It's for the purposes of others that are not in the same position he is. So the priest goes to God on behalf of those that are not in the same position he is. And he comes from God to those that are not in the same position and tells them about God and what God is like and how to please God, you see. So notice, Moses says you are to be a kingdom of priests. He's saying this to the whole nation. The whole kingdom is a kingdom of priests. The whole nation, this whole ethnic group is in this distinct position with God that no other ethnic group occupies. But their purpose in being that position, in that position, is not for their own good. Oh, they are benefited, but they're in this relationship with a purpose larger than their own interests, you see. So if it's a kingdom of priests, make up words, who are they priesting for? Each other? No, the whole kingdom. They're a kingdom of priests. They don't need to go to God for each other. They're all in this relationship with God. Well, then who are they to be a priest for? The nations, those that are not in the same position. And so Peter grabs this language and says to you, church, 1 Peter 2.9, 1 Peter 2.9, you're a chosen generation. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're God's own special people. And so many Christians read that and they go, oh, aren't we great? Oh, man, they almost break their arms trying to pat themselves on the back with this privileged position God has put us in as believers. But they don't read the rest of the verse. What does the rest of the verse say? 
that you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You're God's own special people. Why? That you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Proclaim His praises to who? Each other? <clears throat> Wrong answer. You don't need to proclaim His praises to each other. You all know Him through Christ. But we're to proclaim His praises to who? Those that are still in the dark. Jesus in John 4 said that God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. The Father is seeking worshipers. The experience that some of us had this morning in worship, when, when you enter in, when there's those moments where we're caught up, and even though we're in a group, we're singing with one voice to the very presence of our God, that experience, shame on us if we're content with that experience alone. Shame on us if we don't want to share that experience. Give God what God seeks, worshipers, people that are still in the dark. Because he is the missionary God, and that is our role. Now go to 2 Chronicles chapter 6. 2 Chronicles chapter 6. Now, what I'm telling you, what I'm showing you from the Scripture, is the reality of it is only a few in Israel understood in the same sense that only a few believers, only a few pastors get the whole point of their relationship with God. Think about Matthew 4.19. Jesus said, the first four disciples, come follow me. And that wasn't the end of the sentence. And I will make you fishers of men. In the very call to follow him in an intimate, real relationship, at the beginning of the call, he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He's the missionary God. I'm going to bless you. You're going to get to follow me. But this is a blessing with the responsibility of bringing others to follow me too. From the day of their call, they understood the missionary God was going to use them to call others to himself. In the next three years were Jesus training them how to fish and then telling them how far to fish globally. In 2 Chronicles chapter 6, Solomon understood who the God of Israel was because his father, David, had passed it on. The Psalms, Psalm 96, 3, declare his glory among the nations. Psalm 67, let the nations be glad. All through the Psalms, these references to God being worshipped by the nations. Now Solomon has done, he's completed the temple that his dad wanted to build and it's dedication day. And the whole nation is gathered there as the king of Israel prays for the temple for the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the whole nation is gathered there. And beginning at verse 12, it describes the scene. Solomon's on a platform. It's packed wall to wall with the people of Israel at the dedication of the temple. And Solomon raises his hands and drops to his knees and launches into this incredible prayer beginning at verse 14. But as this prayer goes on, listen to verse 32 in the middle of the prayer. Solomon says, moreover, <clears throat> moreover, concerning a foreigner, 
who is not of your people Israel, but has come from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When they come and pray in this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to which all the foreigner asks you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. Solomon understood the God of Israel was the God of the nations, that this temple was not just for Israel, it was for the nations. But Israel never got it. They thought it was about them and the blessings God poured upon them, and that was the end all, them being blessed, as do many followers of Jesus today. They've got the same myopia that Israel had in spite of what is clearly taught in the New Testament. Now let me close with Mark chapter 11. The missionary God in the New Testament becomes a missionary. Jesus, the Son of God, comes into our world. And interesting that when He comes in Luke 2.10... The angels speak to the shepherds and say, I bring you good tidings of great joy for Israel. No, good tidings of great joy for all people. Then the heavenly host comes along in 2.14 and says, On earth, peace on earth, goodwill toward Israel. No, goodwill towards men. John the Baptist in John 1.29 sees Jesus coming as he's in the Jordan baptizing people. Here comes Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of Israel. No, the sin of the world. There's no New Testament. Some people have the idea that Jesus, God didn't care about anybody but the Jews until Jesus came along. No, the Old Testament shows that the God of the Bible is the God of all people who's always wanted to bless all of the ethnic groups and languages that He's created, each of them with their own unique way of bringing Him glory. And so in Mark chapter 11, and I, I said this first service, and I got I to gotta toot Ryan's horn again. First of all, I'm a little bit of a dinosaur, you know. So the whole idea of the unfinished stage and, car, you know, it's just a little different for us older folk. <laughs> but it's cool. It's cool. Uh, and I like it. Actually, I like it. But I'm sitting there, and I gaze upon the top step, and I go, thank you, Lord. Brian gets it. I don't know how many messages that I've heard where Jesus cleanses the temple and the whole message is built on this is to be a house of prayer. This is to be a house of prayer. That isn't all that Jesus said. Mark eleven seventeen records the whole thing that Jesus said. And in Mark eleven seventeen. Jesus goes into the temple that last week of his life and there's a swap meet going on. Jews from all over the world are buying and selling, exchanging money, selling animals. It's a rat race swap meet. And Jesus walks into there and he's flaming mad. He's angrier than he ever is at any other point in his ministry. Something has ticked off the Creator. Mark eleven seventeen tells us what it is. Verse 17, he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you've turned it into a den of thieves. Where was the swap meet taking place? The court of the Gentiles. 
the one location in the temple where prayer should have been lifted to God for the nations and where that stranger or foreigner that Solomon prayed for should be able to come. And Jesus, the missionary God, goes into the temple days away from being arrested and murdered. And in the court of the Gentiles, the signal that's being sent is this God cares about nobody but Israel. He only cares about Israel and these sacrifices and whatever. Who cares about the Gentiles that might want to come and worship God in this court? God had been misrepresented, blasphemed. The signal was being sent and Jesus said, no, and he cleared the temple. This is to be a house of prayer for all nations. You see, Brian gets it. How many of us get it? That our walk and our relationship with God is about the glory of God amongst all people. And one quick note, in Phoenix, these refugees that we work with, we have a community garden, two acres of our church property, 10 families farming it, growing organic vegetables. We teach English. We've been written up in the paper a couple of times. I got hate calls from Christians saying, how dare you help those people that are ruining our country? How dare you, pastor, destroy our country? I hope your kids are affected by the gangs they start. I'm not, and these people claim to follow Jesus. They're more American than they are kingdom. They have America's interests above the kingdom's interests. God is sovereign, and he's brought into our communities who he wants here because he's the missionary God. And we can't get out to the countries a lot of these people are coming from. So what does the missionary God do? He brings them right into our neighborhoods. And so we deal with Hindus, and we deal with Buddhists, and we deal with Muslims right in our neighborhood representing the true and the living God. But the Christians are fearful about losing the American way of life. Shame on us. We are kingdom members first, American citizens second. God's business is being glorified by the nations He's created that He's brought into our neighborhoods. So we serve the missionary God. And our heart has to be where his heart is. International students that attend this university, some of your neighbors that have come from around the world, oh, they're not interrupting your lifestyle. They're God's design to let you participate in the Great Commission. Not just missionaries going, but you can make disciples of all nations by going across the street or getting gas or going to Starbucks. What a privilege. Let's pray. Father, thank you. You're an awesome God, and you've unpackaged and revealed yourself as this missionary God. And Lord, you called us out of the dark. We're with you because you sought us out. We said uncle and surrendered. But you're seeking others now through us. Lord, help us to get on board with where we know your heart is at. Help us to seize the moment you've given us in a country that the whole world wants to come to? Lord, let us reach them as they come with your love and your truth for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.